Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swaddlers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swaddlers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swaddlers absorbs wetness better than the leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Welcome to ABG, Asian Boss Girl, a podcast for the modern day Asian American woman. My name is Helen. I'm Janet. I'm Mel. And I'm Trashti. One of the amazing things about the feedback we're getting from listeners of ABG is that people of all Asian identifying backgrounds relate to our content. The three of us are of East Asian descent, but we know that the umbrella of Asian and Asian Americans is much wider than our personal perspectives. Today, we have a very special guest, Ms. Dreshti Gandhi, who is an Asian boss girl of Indian descent. Dreshti was born in India and came to the U.S. when she was five years old. She grew up in Cerritos, California, and is the eldest of three children. She attended college at the University of California, San Diego, UCSD, then went on to get her MBA at USC. Dreshti currently works as a management consultant for EY, my alma mater, (laughs) in their change management practice. She currently lives in Chicago, where she met and is recently engaged her fiancé, Sarati. Dreshti is also one of my best and closest friends, and she has been such a huge supporter in my personal life and of this podcast journey. And we wanted to bring her on today because she is pretty much a South Asian version of us. (laughs) We want to talk to her about her dating experiences, her journey with her career, and share all the various aspects of her Asian American, specifically Indian American, upbringing. So welcome, Drushti. Yay! Thank you guys so much. I'm so, so honored to be with you guys. Um, Obviously, I've known, you know, the Asian boss girl from the beginning. I've listened to your first podcast even before it came out, previewed it with Janet. So... Oh, yeah, she's yeah, one of the friends that I sent. I was like, please. It was amazing. I was like, oh, now I know what an Asian boss girl is and how you guys are redefining it. So I've been super excited. And when Janet asked me to join, I was so floored and so excited and so honored. And I'm finally getting to do this. So I'm super excited. Thank you for having me. Now, we're really like excited and honored to have you on I know like Janet always talks about you like you know um, outside the podcast like to finally meet you I know it's virtually but it's just it's great like I know like if you're a close friend of Janet I feel like you're like a close friend of ours yes agree I feel like I know you guys as well so excited to, I was like telling Janet let's chit chat and then we'll just do the podcast when we have time <laughs> no for sure before this recording we're like going off on conversation for about 30 minutes we're like oh we should record now actually <laughs> Janet's like okay let's stop talking let's record this instead <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So let's just dive right into it then. So, Dresh, if you don't, if you don't mind, I'm gonna ask you. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your family background and what was it like growing up in like an Indian household? And how has your culture and family shaped who you are? Yeah, absolutely. So as you guys mentioned, I was born in India and I moved here when I was five. So first, I'm the oldest child, and everyone knows just in, same as Asian culture and Indian culture, the responsibilities of an oldest child is 
is pretty big. Um, I have a younger sister and a younger brother. And so I think, you know, one of the big foundations of growing up in India is that there's a big sense of community. Unlike America, when you grow up in India, it's like you're raised by your entire building, your neighborhood. You know everybody. Everybody knows everybody. You go on the roof to play and there's no limitations as far as who's around and, and who's involved in your life. It's a very open door policy. People just go in and out of the house. Doors are not locked. It's it's super, very community friendly. And so I think that's definitely something that really shaped me because I carry that to today where I have such an open door policy in, in my house with my fiance. I'm like, yeah, everyone come over and like, let's just hang out. Um, so I definitely think that's a big cultural thing from India that shape me. Um, and then I moved to America when I was five. And as most of you know, you know, with immigrant parents, um, what they try to do is retain their culture. And so I pretty much say that I was raised in 1960s India. I was not raised in 1980s, 1990s America, because my parents raised me the way they were raised, just in a different country. And because they were trying so hard to hold on, I was raised very conservative, um, my parents don't drink at all, so I had no alcohol in the house. They don't eat meat, so I grew up vegetarian. So things like when I went to school, I had no idea like what meat was, and it smelled gross, and it was like, what is this? The food is so different. And, um, you know, being so conservative, I actually ended up watching cartoons till I was 18. I like, really wanted to watch Dawson's Creek. I'll never forget. And my mom was like, that's too, that's too racy. That's too old. You're not allowed to do that. So, um and then again, um, being conservative, you're not really allowed to talk to guys. Uh, you're not really. So that was a big thing when my first friend um, in seventh grade called for like a team homework assignment. And my dad was like, who's this calling? You're not allowed to get married. And I was like, what? So this is just for homework. And so um, super different. And and last but not least, I'll say growing up in an Indian household, because again, you're dressed the way you're, you dress in India. Um, you're not really, you're not supposed to wear shorts. You don't wear sleeveless. So even all of that was being super rebellious for me. And when I had to wear shorts for PE, my dad was not very happy with that. So I was the mm -hmm. only person in 90 degrees wearing sweatpants because I wasn't allowed to show my legs, wasn't allowed to show my arms. So I think it definitely heavily shaped me. It influenced a huge part of who I am. I mean, I'm Hindu. I was raised Hindu. I'm fairly religious. Um, I know my language. Um, I grew up teaching, learning, and choreographing Indian dance. And even to this day, wow. I really do maintain a lot of those roots, even though I've grown to be more American. But at my core and my roots, I'm still pretty Indian. That was awesome. I did not know some of those stories. And <laughs> I've it. known you for 18 years. <laughs> yeah, we never talked about how my, uh, my dad did not, or I had to, don't tell my parents this. God, I hope they don't end up listening to this. But that um, sometimes I would save up money that my parents would give me from like field trips or whatever and buy like a tank top and then sneak out of the house in a regular clothes, but then take, put on my tank top because it was like the cool thing to do. So yes, this is uh, what it is to grow up in an Indian household for sure. <laughs> oh, wow. Mm. It's interesting also because you are the eldest child and mm. I know you personally know how much that shapes your personality and a sense of responsibility, but to see then like the small acts of rebellion mm -hmm. that happen because you also are a very like strong-willed individual. <laughs> yes. So it's nice to kind of get the context of the culture, the cultural aspect of some of those rebellions. Well, it's so funny, Janet, because my sister was in track. So she had to wear these tight booty shorts. <laughs> 
And so imagine that with me, I can't, I had to wear like full on clothes and my sister was showing up in booty shorts. So let's just say that was a reality check for my dad. (laughs) (laughs) Drushti, you grew up in Cerritos and I know from a lot of our conversations that, um, the community was actually largely East Asian. Like you grew up with a lot of East Asian uh, friends and and schoolmates. Um, can you talk about how that might have uh, affected your education experience? For us who come from kind of like a more of an American-born Chinese background, kind of share the um, American-born Indian background and how education played a role in your upbringing. So this is one way which I think were very similar, if not exactly the same. Um, so I know... It's the same educational values. It's like you have to be the best of the best in your class. You have to be the smartest. And, you know, both my parents, so in India, when you grow up, um, you get ranked in class. Unlike here, where you just get letter grades, you actually get ranked there. So they know if they're number one or number two in class. Mm -hmm. So when I'd come home with an A, my dad would be like, well, why is it an A plus? And I'd be like, okay, so then I'd go get an A plus, right? And he'd be like, but are you number one in class? So it was always like, what's next, what's better, be the best of the best. So education was huge. And then, of course, that relates to career, right? Because you go to the best school and you want to go to, you know, the Ivy Leagues or the Berkeleys or the, you know, whatever that period school is. Um, And then education becomes the biggest focus and you get to that top tier school and then you get the job of an engineer or doctor. and, And that's the path, right? So I think it's very similar to the Chinese American pathway. And then I think you you were also maybe asking about some of the social similarities. And I think when you look at the social similarities, I, I think there's definitely um, the education is the, the biggest value. And I think there's some cultural values as well. But I think the biggest similarity is that everyone's an immigrant mm-hmm. and you're coming from a different country. Your parents are coming from different countries. So you're really trying to retain those concepts and values but from a social perspective obviously between Asian and Indian um, the languages are different the food is different the culture is different so um, but as far as just like being conservative education focused wanting to succeed and having that drive I think those are very similar things between Asian um, and Indian culture. That's really insightful, Drashti. So diving a little bit deeper into culture and identity, one of our listeners wrote into us, thank you, Dinithi. She identifies as half Japanese and half Sri Lankan. And she said, when I hear Asian or the phrase ABG used around me, I hear and see the connotation as being East Asian or Southeast Asian descendants. People don't always see me as Asian and instead sometimes see me as brown. She goes on to say, I may be highly sensitive to this, but when I listen to the podcast as well, it brings back the same memories of belonging to a minority, but at the same time, I don't belong to the minority that everyone is aware of. So, Josh, I guess a question for you. Who do you think the term Asian represents and how has that impacted your view of your own identity? I love this question because I struggled with my identity for a long time. And I'll give you a little bit of context here. So first, I grew up in India, right? Um, And I was raised in this conservative Indian 1960s culture. And then I grew up in America. (laughs) So there's that whole aspect of when did I identify as American? And that took me well into my 20s to feel like I was American. So that was hard because for Indian people, I was very American. When I went back to India, they were like, oh, you're American. And I'm like, 
but I feel Indian because when I'm in America, they don't view me as American. They view me as Indian, right? So you're constantly in this middle ground of, well, who am I really? Because I'm both. And I think in the 1980s and 1990s, I'm not sure people were comfortable saying I'm two things in one and feeling good about that. Mm. So I think that was my first, um, you know, like, am I Indian or American? And then the complication of Asian definitely um, got added in because, as I mentioned, I went to Cerrito. So I feel actually very privileged because... I know Asian is not one thing. I know Asian is many things. You can have Chinese, Japanese, Thai, Vietnamese, and so many more. And I feel privileged that I got to learn about all of those because I grew up around all the different people and all the different cultures. And I know the differences in language and food between all of them. So when I look at those types of what I guess you can consider East Asian um, I don't. I see more similarities there than I did with myself, and so it was hard for me to consider myself Asian. And, and actually, when Dinathy says she's brown, I consider myself brown. But then now, Hispanics, Latinos, other cultures have been starting to consider themselves brown. Mm -hmm. So for me personally, um, I think South Asian is the closest identification. But really, I just say that I'm Indian or Indian American, and. I think when I really face this issue is when I have to check that box, right? Um, I know you guys are all familiar with like when you go and you have to identify yourself on a form, I usually do identify as Asian on a form. This mm -hmm. is definitely a topic that a lot of our writers write into us about because me, Janet, and Mel, we represent an East Asian female voice, although our name is under the umbrella of Asian boss girl, right? Right. So we definitely do want to represent for everyone under the sort of Asian umbrella. And I'm so glad that to have you on, on this podcast to talk about your upbringing and your experiences too. I think another question I, I have for you here is, is there a desire from your end to change that perception of what is considered Asian and for you not to have to say, I'm Indian American and, and instead just say, I'm Asian? Or are you comfortable just saying, I am Indian and... I identify as Indian American and that's what you'll say, or I guess that's how you would identify. That's a great question. I actually, uh, and this is just me personally, I think everyone has to identify with what's right for them. Um, so for example, with Dinati, she has half Japanese, half Sri Lankan. So she has to think through what she relates to and how she was raised and where she was raised. And so I don't think it's as simple as one thing. Um, I know for me, I definitely relate more to just being Indian than being Asian or even being South Asian. Uh, for me, it's just a direct to say I'm, I'm Indian and American because that's as straightforward as, as I could be about who I am and, and where I live and where I come from and the combination of where I've been raised and how I've been raised. As you're talking, Dresha, I could kind of relate to that because like... Um... I feel like it's only recently within my college years that I got to, like, I guess adapt to the Asian-American type of, like, identity. Because I've always identified myself as I'm Taiwanese American. I do think... Yeah. Like, I know we're all we're a part of this collective, like, group. But I think if you were to, like, dissect every, like, Vietnamese-American, like, Chinese-American, Indian-American, like, Cambodian-American, we're actually very different to have our own little traditions and values. Yes, so, like, absolutely. When you say I identify as Indian-American, I was like, I actually could relate to that, being Taiwanese-American. Yeah, and, and even for, for you guys, um, or for you, Mel, specifically being Taiwanese, it's so hard because you're dealing with, well, what's the difference between Taiwanese and, and Chinese, Chinese, right? Because mm -hmm. I, obviously, I... Did it a Taiwanese guy. I was around a bunch of Chinese and Taiwanese people. 
And I can even go into the differences of, you know, no, I'm from Shanghai versus I'm from Hong Kong and how culturally different those two places are. So for you too, it's hard because when you're in America, um, not everybody knows the differences and you have to almost educate them. And even when I identify myself, I don't actually say I'm Indian American. I just say I'm Indian because it feels weird to me to say I'm Indian American because usually when I'm talking to someone that's asking me or I have to self-identify, it's usually to an American person, not another Indian person. So I'm sure you guys feel the same way. Anytime you have to identify yourself, you don't it's usually not to someone that's of your same culture. I think it's such an interesting conversation about like I love this, you know, talking about the the specificity of the differences within Asian and being specific about Chinese versus Taiwanese versus Indian versus Pakistani. Um, and that's that's definitely something that like I came into much later to going into college when I met Drushti, where UCSD had a lot of different Asian people. Prior to that, I did more strongly identify as Chinese and then kind of being introduced to then more different types of Asian people then it became Asian because that was more encompassing of more people that you were around right and I definitely did feel a closer relatability to to Jessie because of her Indian culture background and how similar it was to to the Chinese mm-hmm. background yeah absolutely I, I do think that plays a huge role is that you do connect with people who are culturally similar to you mm-hmm Ladies, how is your hair doing during quarantine? It hasn't been great. Uh, My roots are definitely growing out. My color is hard to maintain and it's getting so dry not being able to visit my hairstylist to trim the ends. Dude, same. I literally was so close to just cutting everything off, but I now regret it. I think it might be better for me to find new ways to take care of my current hair. Function of Beauty formulates every bottle based on our unique hair types and hair goals. They gather our information through a quiz and you can even customize with the fragrance and color. You can also print your name on the bottle. So we went with Woo Woo, Mel Mel, and Jan Jan. Function of Beauty is offering our listeners a savings of 20% on their first purchase. Go to functionofbeauty.com ABG to take your four-part hair profile quiz and save 20% on your first order. Don't spend another minute in hair misery. Go to functionofbeauty.com ABG to let them know that we sent to you. That's functionofbeauty.com ABG. Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swathers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swathers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swathers absorbs wetness better than a leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. In social settings when they're like, especially in the media where they talk about Asian like events, so it's like an Asian film festival. And then if you don't see Indian people represented, do you feel othered in that sense? Yeah, I. that's so interesting. I think it's a matter of everyone trying to find where they fit in, right? Because mm. in some ways, I think we want to be separate. We want to be unique. We want to be identified for 
you know, truly who we are, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Like how you specify I'm Taiwanese versus I'm Chinese, right? And even when I talk to other Indians, I don't say I'm Indian. I just say I'm Gujarati because even within Indians, there's a spectrum Mm -hmm. of, you know, what language, what culture of, you know, are you South? Are you North? Are you Punjabi? Are you, you know... um, Tamil, are you Telugu, right? And so it depends on who you're talking to and how you're identifying it. So if, yes, I guess in some sense, if I'm looking at all of America, maybe I do want to jump on the closest association, which is Asian. Mm. But maybe in the ideal world, I would rather say I'm Indian, which is a in Asia, but it's significantly different than some of the Asian cultures. So uh, it's, it's interesting to think about, I guess maybe it's about who the audience is and what you can feel connected to and how that audience can connect with you mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. but it's interesting because i think you you almost want to depending on who you're talking to you want to be as closely related to whatever they know as possible right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think a, a follow-up question to that would be so during the democratic uh, presidential campaign right i think andrew yang was seen as sort of the asian candidate but then Kamala yeah. Harris, she is part Indian. Tulsi Gabbard, she's Pacific Islander. Mm-hmm. But then everyone sort of viewed him as like the Asian Democratic candidate. I would see that for myself if I was Indian or of Pacific Islander um, descent. I would think, why is my candidate not viewed as the Asian candidate? Why is it that he mm-hmm. having an East Asian you know, face, he's the one that's sort of representing that minority? Yeah, um, I think for me, I was definitely not offended by someone saying he's the Asian candidate. And I think I'm not even sure if some of these candidates are openly identifying themselves as, you know, Indian, even if they are half of it. Um, There's definitely Indian people in the government. And I'm not quite sure how they identify themselves. But I think the most confusing thing, and I don't think it's between Indians and Asians, I think it's between Indians and Pakistanis. Mm -hmm. And not to get into a long feud, but essentially Indians and Pakistanis have been in a war for 50 years. So for most people, they're like, whoa, 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 I'm not this. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's probably on a political level too, where the differentiation happens. But I, I really do think that I, most Indian people will want to be in their own classification. Mm-hmm. And if not, then Asian is the next best classification. This is all like really interesting to hear because um, I think my perception has always been that people who are Indian in America, they always feel a little bit othered, right? Especially because they might not be factored into the categorization of what is considered Asian. I think there's like a large percentage of Americans that will say that Indian doesn't fall under under Asian. So my question to you would be, do you feel that you are represented in media? Are you pretty happy with the representation? Or do you wish there could be more that's that's done? You know, I think Indians are coming up. (laughs) Um, I mean, we have Mindy, we have Aziz, we have Hassan Minaj. I mean, we have so many more people becoming stars of shows, becoming comedians, becoming actors. Um, So I feel much more like they are represented now than ever before. And Mm. that's awesome. Especially, you know, the interesting thing is, forget the fact that there's more Indians for Americans, I think the cooler thing is that there's more Indians for Indians. And the reason Mm. I say that is because, like I mentioned, like when we're growing up as Asian Americans, Indian Americans, it's like you're a doctor, engineer, lawyer, like you are a super stable profession. And to see Indians grow and do, you know, like they are in India, right? But in America, to see them go into arts, 
go into music, go into comedy, go into acting, and to be able to show even my kids in the future, you can do anything, mm. you can be anything, that you don't need to fall into a straight line path just like my parents were telling me because it's stable, because this is how you make money, but you can actually make your own path. You can find your own success, and it doesn't have to be defined on we're immigrants, we're Indian, that you can really do anything if that's your passion. So to me, I, and I think my fiance talks about this too, because um, he's a teacher, and he's like, it'd be so cool to teach at an Indian school, but there's Indian kids, because then I can show them you can be more than just what the straight path is. Um, mm -hmm. that you can be anything. And, and so we talk about that a lot and how we really do think it's cool that these people represent Indians and, and really it's for other Indians to, to connect with, to associate with, and hopefully dream and become um, and know that there's opportunities for them. Actually, yeah, the more that you are mentioning that the CEO of Google, right, Sundar oh. Pichai? Yes. Indian, CEO of Microsoft, former CEO. Indian. Yep, Satya. Uh, and then former CEO of PepsiCo, right, was a female Indian. Oh, mm -hmm. she's awesome. She's actually a very, almost like inspirational person for me. So from a career perspective, I really do want to be in the C-suite eventually. That's my eventual goal. And, you know, for a long time, my, my mom's such a hard worker. So I was like, I can do everything. I can do anything. I can do all of it at one time. And she had this amazing article in which she talks about the day she became CEO um, and got her offer. She goes home and she's like, hey, mom, I'm so excited. I got the offer to be CEO of Pepsi. And her mom is like, did you bring the milk? And she's like, but mom, are you listening to what I said? Like, I just got this amazing opportunity. And she's like, that's your job. But at home, you're a mom, you're a wife. So did you bring the milk? You know? And and then she goes on to talk about once she becomes a CEO, about how when her daughter wants to call her, she has to go through her assistant um, and ask a list of questions just to be like, can I play video games? And the assistant has questions and then that's the middle person. That's the back and forth. And I was just like, that's awesome. But that also made me realize I don't want that for myself. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want my kids mm -hmm. to have to call me via my assistant. Um, so it, her story is interesting. She's amazing. She taught me things I didn't need to learn for myself that I could learn via mm -hmm. her. So, All right, Dresha, you already mentioned your career, but do you mind um, sharing with our listeners a little bit about your job and how would you describe what you do and what does your day and week look like? Absolutely. So as uh, I believe Helen mentioned, I'm a consultant for our uh, at EY under our people advisory services practice. Um, I've been at EY for about six years. The easiest way to describe what I do is that I focus on helping businesses through transformations, but from the people perspective. So simply, I help employees through change. At EY, I've been there, for, as I mentioned, for over about six years. I've done 14 different projects across six industries and so many different types of change management, org design, um, operating model, construction and building, change management, centers of excellence within companies. So that's at a very high level of, of what I do. Um, and, and as you asked from a what's my day and my week look like? So I actually get on a plane every Monday and wake up at 4 a.m. usually Ooh. and get back late on Thursday. So I travel Monday through Thursday. I go to my client every week. A lot of what my day-to-day -day looks like is meeting client expectations, so having a lot of meetings, um, working a lot on PowerPoint, looking at end-to-end -end project, managing all the things that we're trying to deliver to the client, 
a big and my favorite part of the job is leading, coaching, and mentoring my team. Um, and I think from a very conceptual perspective, a lot of what we do is take very ambiguous information and simplify it, structure it, organize it, and use information we have to tell a story. Um, just curious, like when you travel, where do you go to? Like, uh, I know you're based in Chicago. Where do you fly out of? <laughs> yeah. So I have gone to Ohio, to New Jersey, to New York, um, some of my uh, to Seattle. Uh, and when I say Ohio and New Jersey, they're random um, cities. So, you know, to me personally, oddly enough, I don't, I've, um, although I've had projects in New York City and Seattle, it, I think it makes it tougher because you're working a lot of hours. Um, I think a lot of people think you go there and you get to explore the city and do all this stuff. You don't. You really work you know, 10, 12, 15 hour days, depending on what's happening on the project. I order Uber Eats half the time. I'm in my hotel room, my gym at the hotel. So really, I'm, I'm really just wherever my client is and then at the hotel. And I think the best part about the travel, quote unquote, is just that you get to eat at a lot of different restaurants and try a lot of different foods. But you don't really get to explore the city. Joshi mm. and I would do, <laughs> we, we try to do like weekly phone calls. And every time we get on the phone, I'm like, what city are you in again? What oh my what gosh. time is it? Yes. <laughs> and usually it's like she's coming from work and she's like, okay, I got to hang up now because I have another two hours of work to do. I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm not. I get everything you're saying. Yeah. So Helen knows that lifestyle of, of the grind. Yeah. No, I remember like every time I traveled somewhere, someone would be like, oh, what are you going to do? Are you going to go visit X, Y, and Z? I'm like, nope. Just going to go straight to the office, get some good food, and then sleep and come back. That's really it. Yes, because yeah. you need your brain to function. So yeah. I don't know. Some people are like, go yeah. out and have fun and out until 2 a.m. And I'm like, no. And then the other part of travel that we try to focus on too is teaming, right? Uh, I think that is one of the best parts is unlike a nine to five, you do get to build your team very differently because you do have team dinners. And when you go to those team dinners, and even if they're once a week, um, you do bond. And I think that really helps make you work better together at the end of the day. Um, and especially for us as consultants, you just get thrown onto a project. You don't know anyone most of the time and you have to team very quickly. And in two weeks, you have to put something together and deliver to the client. So um, you don't really have time to to get to know each other. You're just like, you're on the team. Hi, my name is Drushti. Here, get this done in this week. Thanks. Mm -hmm. It kind of all fits and works together well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like forced bonding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to come to dinner. <laughs> exactly. There is definitely some sort of an obligation to come, even if it's unspoken. And I'll be honest, I mean, the travel is wearing on me, and I know it wears on a lot of people. The hours definitely wear on a lot of people. I think the hard part for me is that I love variety in my job. So I love the fact that I can do a different project every three to six months. I love the fact that I've worked on 14 projects across industries. I learn so much. For me, a huge driver is learning. And when I have more to learn and I have more to grow, I feel more motivated at work. Um, and those are the parts of consulting that I genuinely enjoy is, is that, uh, you know, change and that ability to always have something new to learn. But yeah, the travel and the hours, it's definitely, I think when you first start, you're really excited, right? You're like, oh, this is cool. And I have an expense account and I have, you know, I get to be on a flight and I get to go to hotels. But mm -hmm. after a certain point in time, everyone to some degree, either one gets used to it or two feels 
that it's not mm-hmm. a sustainable life or they don't want that life. Yeah. Um, definitely one of the transitions in life happens when either you find someone or you're planning for kids or whatever that next phase is for you. Yeah. It's interesting that you say, um, when you said the, the, the best thing about your job is the teaming as- aspect and then also the learning, because I would say that those are also my two takeaways. Like learning yeah. in a fast-paced environment and doing so many different things over a short period of time and getting to touch yes. on so many different clients too during such a short period of time. It, like, it really does expedite your, your learning. Oh my God, it's crazy because the things that I, I have learned, first of all, you would not learn these in a normal job. Yeah. That you just wouldn't. Um, like now I know about, you know, what people at pharmaceutical companies do that are MDs, but they're not at a hospital being doctors and what research and, and, what data, you know, architects look like. Those are things I would have never known before, but you get really into whatever project you're on. And right now I'm learning about cloud transformation, right? And so it's really cool. I just, that's the stuff that I love. And then I'll say the second thing too, and and I don't know if you guys had this at your job is I think that we get some really cool opportunities that I noticed that people that are internal at the company, they don't have those opportunities. It's just not the same. As consultants, I deal directly with VPs. I've dealt with C-suite sometimes. Mm. And I feel like if I was just an employee at that company, I would not get to the opportunity to even talk to those people or to work on high level projects. So those are definitely the, let's just say the carrots of consulting. <laughs> Great. So you, you shared with us um, some of the things that you love about your career, maybe some of the reasons why you think it's a good fit. But um, if you could share with our listeners how you went about selecting this and maybe what role um, you think that maybe your culture played in, in that decision process and on what you value. Yeah, um, the culture played a huge role at the beginning of my journey uh, because, as I mentioned, I told my you know my family I wanted to be in business, and of course they were like, "You are going to fail." <laughs> um, it is so hard. It's so hard to be successful, be a doctor, be an engineer. So what did I do as a first child in an Indian family of immigrants? I was a bioengineering pre med major, right? <laughs> um, and I was miserable every moment of it. And eventually when I was around 21, I did break it to my parents that I will not be a doctor or an engineer. Um, I still graduated pre-med and and all that stuff, but I did not go to med school. I did not take the MCATs. And instead I got a job at Enterprise, which of course wasn't easy for the Indian culture, but I really wanted to be in business. And Enterprise gave me the opportunity to learn business the quickest. Um, I got promoted within nine months to an assistant manager there and eventually branch manager. I ended up managing over seven branches and 125 employees in my first four to five years of having a job, which is such a unique opportunity. Um, I would literally learn how to run a business end to end, how to manage revenue, profit, customer experience, manage partnerships, um, how to do back-end accounting, and then really how to train and develop a team. So I really got a full-on business experience. And every one of these branches I would go to, I would go, I would say, okay, here's assess what's wrong, and then I would put a solution together and fix it. So I was almost an internal consultant there. And so I knew I wanted to do this bigger and broader, and I knew that if I had to do that, I wanted to go to business school, build the business foundation that I didn't get with a bioengineering degree. Um, And so I decided to apply to USC because it was the closest 
program to what I really want to do. Loved it. Best decision of my life. Also fight on. <laughs> um, and um, I will tell you that the reason I went into the more of the people consulting is because the philosophy I developed at Enterprise was happy people equals happy business. So when I focused on doing turnarounds through my employees, training, developing them, coaching, mentoring them, having them succeed, the profits just followed and the business was eventually successful. So that's kind of my journey of starting with this huge cultural impact, um, transitioning to a maybe uncomfortable place of impact, uh, cultural impact, but knowing that's what I wanted to do. And now coming to a much more stable, successful career, which um, I can say is definitely pleased, you know, family and, and culture wise. Um, but I think that it was a journey and that it took time to get here, but I feel really good about being able to do this. And uh, I would, I hope that explains the how it all comes together. That was beautifully put together. Thank you. <laughs> and from what I've heard on this podcast so far, you are an incredibly ambitious and driven individual. And it sounds like it comes from equal parts, your culture and also just your personality too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I would say it's both. Um, and I would actually say that uh, you know, as you as we've talked about, the Indian culture and the Asian culture really push their kids to succeed in whatever they do in life and to be the best. So it's definitely partially cultural, but also personality wise. And I, I would say a part of that personality factor is my mom. Um, she had three kids. She worked a full time job. She cooked and cleaned. She took us to practices. She literally slept four hours a night for probably 10 years of her life, right, um, to getting us to be as successful as all of us are. So I think there's some part of me that thinks I can do everything and, and embodies her. And if she can do working at a hospital and do the kids and family, then I can as well. Um, and so I really do think that it is partially my culture. It's partially how I was raised and who I was raised by um, and then just me being me and then I would also say that um, and maybe I, this is a little bit of a tangent but I do think it's really important and actually Janet and I've talked a lot about this but purpose I think another big thing that drives me in my career is my purpose in life you know, uh, I realized my purpose in life when I was 12 years old, and I knew that my purpose was to help people one at a time, that every time I went through something in my life, someone else would come in my life and have gone through that exact thing. And I was like, oh, my God, I can help you because I just did this and I overcame X, Y, Z. And so knowing that that was going to be what I brought to the world, I bring that to work. And that's why I really want to be, you know, a CEO, CHRO, because I want to help people. I want to have the ability to have an impact and I want to make the working eight hours a day the best it can be. Because as we know, we talk about work-life balance and work-life integration, but really it's all life, right? It's one thing. And just because something happens at work, you can't just turn it off when you go home. And just because something happens at home, you can't turn it off at work. And so for me, it's like, what can I do to make this work environment the best eight hours it can possibly be? So I kind of bring that purpose with me. And that also continues to drive me to be ambitious and get promoted because I really do want to make sure I have an impact on people, a positive influence in some way. And uh, last but not least, I feel very lucky that I'm one of the people that I'm very passionate about what I do. So 
Um, I feel really good about being able to have a purpose, know my purpose, meet my purpose in some ways, and then also have a job that I, I genuinely like. Dang, I could tell. I could just um, feel the passion as you're speaking. So um, <laughs> we'll see you in the C-suite very soon, right, Drushti? <laughs> my priorities have shifted. Yeah, well, actually, speaking of priorities, um, yeah. have you noticed they changed as you've gotten older? Like, I know family is a huge goal for you. Like, have you thought about, you know, accommodating for this change in your life in the next couple of years in terms of like, your career and your other aspects of your life? I have thought a lot about how my priorities have shifted. I know we're talking about this at some point, but marriage is such a focal point of Indian culture and such a big thing that, you know, we're supposed to do growing up. And so I don't think we have that much control over when and how we find the one, but I knew I had control over my career. So I really did accelerate that and I focused on that for a lot of years. And then... I think at some point I was like, okay, I've taken my career to exactly where I want it to go. It's time to redirect as much energy as I can into dating and into finding that person so I can eventually have my my family. So I definitely think my priorities have shifted. Um, I'm really excited that I found someone. And so what I realize about myself is I know I want to be in the C-suite at some point, but I'm not in a rush. Mm. My goal is not to be the youngest, the fastest. My goal is to be there because, like I said, my purpose is to have the impact. And so whether I have that impact now or in 10 years, it doesn't matter. I just want to have that. So I think for everybody who's trying to figure out their priorities. Um, and Jana and I have talked about this all the time is like, dig in to what matters to you. Is it the fastest? Is it the goal? It, what, what really makes you want to do something? And then you can kind of figure that out. The last thing I'll say here is, um, this is actually something that one of the, your ABG listeners and I have talked about, uh, Winnie, if she's hearing shout out to her, um, but ambition, you know, how do women define ambition, right? Um, I think a lot of people and a lot of women define ambition as where they get in their career. But it's interesting to me because ambition is how you handle life, not how you handle your career. If you can have a nine to five job and you're there for your kids every day and you cook and you take care of your husband or you work out or you have hobbies or you volunteer, that's a lot of things. And to me, that's you being ambitious. Um, it's not just one or single faceted, it's multifaceted. So uh, I definitely have seen my priorities shift and I continue to feel and believe that I will be ambitious regardless of if I get into the C-suite in 10 years, 20 years, or maybe even never because I'm doing, I want to do so much more with my life than just have a job and have a career. Yeah, and I, I distinctly remember um, when that conversation shifted because Drushi and I were very close all the way through the very early parts of our career, and I think we shared that personality trait of being so work-focused. Um, and probably a lot of it is cultural, right? Because you start by first focusing on school, and then after school, it's like your work. And then we always talked a little bit about how we know we want marriage and kids, and that's like a thing that's going to happen, but like it, the math didn't add up if you're supposed to you know, accelerate in your career and, and in your personal life. And I, I distinctly remember the day that we were on the phone and you're like, you know what? Yeah, this is something I want, but I don't need it tomorrow. Like, yes. I kind of pri- – like in this moment in my life, I prioritize like starting a marriage and a family. Um, and I think that that is something that probably for, for some of our listeners can relate to and others um, just to kind of a little insight into the future that it's kind of one of those things where it's it's not you're not changing your mind, but your your goal might remain the same. It just might alter in how you achieve it and when you achieve it. Absolutely, Janet. I think life evolves. 
you know, we aren't who we are 10 years ago. And God, in my 20s, I was, I don't know, three different people. I don't even know anymore. <laughs> I mean, we make ourselves, we break ourselves, we grow, we change. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a great thing um, because we're adjusting to what life is bringing us. And that's what really is successful, right? Um, it's not about having one thing and fulfilling that one thing. And if that's okay, if that's what you're trying to do, great. But it's also okay and also acceptable to change as your life changes because things do happen. I mean, right now, who would have predicted coronavirus and how are we all adjusting and, and changing our lives to meet this, right? Um, and as long as we're doing that, I think that's successful. Speaking of kind of changing to uh, this period of your life where you're thinking about marriage and, and starting a family, let's take it back yes. to <laughs> before meeting Sardi and all of the men <laughs> prior How many to men? Oh, yes. <laughs> too, too many for me to remember. Let's say that. And uh, too many, yeah. too many. First dates, I can't even count. Um, can't even count. <laughs> but before we actually get into kind of all the first dates of, of that period of your life, I actually wanted to highlight to to our listeners that your first long term relationship you mentioned this earlier uh, was with the Taiwanese guy. Yes. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what that was like and how specifically culture played a role in your relationship? I'll say on a high level, it played a huge role in the longevity of our relationship, but it played a very minor role in the day to day of our relationship. So let me explain. Um, so we actually got to, I went to get way back. Um, we actually got together at the end of senior year of high school. So the crazy thing is, even in high school, we were resisting being together that entire senior year because of our cultures. So from the get-go, it was like, oh my God, you're Chinese and I'm Indian. And oh my God, should we even be dating? Can we date? And what are our parents going to think? And all the emotions involved in that. Um and oddly enough, the day we got together, we had a conversation essentially being like, we can't get married and our parents will never agree to this and we can't be together. And that was a part of a conversation when the day we got together and that's how crazy our cultural influences were. Um, eventually, our emotions at 17 overcame all those cultural barriers. But that is something we, we talked about. And, you know, from a cultural perspective, um, I, as, as I mentioned before, there's definitely similarities and commonalities, although there are the differences. And I think um, on a day-to-day -day basis, those differences don't come into play, but in the long term, they do. We were together for, for several years, and at some point after being together, we're, we had to talk about marriage more seriously. You know, we're a little bit more grown up, we're in our, like, you know, 20, 21 years old, and we're like... And, I, and at some point I'll get into this, but in Indian culture, you get married at 23 to 25. Um, so I was like, oh, my God, I need to think about marriage. This is happening. Like, I need to get on this, you know, get this started. And we started talking about marriage. And here's what ended up happening. We just had foundational differences in how we wanted to raise our kids. So I'm vegetarian. He's He was not. And he wanted to have meat in the household. And I was like, no way. I need to raise my kids vegetarian. I'm Hindu. He was not religious. Now, again, none of these mattered on a day-to-day -day basis. But when we think about how we want to raise our kids, I was like, I want to raise my kids religious. I want to raise my kids Hindu. 
And he was like, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not religious at all. And we talked about all these things like, well, what kind of name is our kid going to have? Is it going to be Chinese American? Is it going to be Indian Chinese American? How will our kid identify themselves? And are they going to learn Chinese, Gujarati, English, and some other language that they learn in high school? So we quickly realized we don't want the same things out of our family. And so eventually it was some of those cultural differences that led us to really be like, it's not just our parents, it's us. We are rooted in our ways. And although on a day-to-day basis, it doesn't bother us, like it doesn't bother him that I prayed. I don't mind that he ate meat. But when we think about how we want to have a family, our values were just not aligned. And so I think it's absolutely possible to have interracial marriages, but those people have to be aligned or flexible or willing and to be honest we were young and at that point in our life we were very much so um rooted in in what we believed in and i think we both actually ended up with exactly what we were looking for Mm -hmm. so it worked out but i think cultural like i mentioned uh, the summary of it is on the long term yes huge huge impact in the day-to-day, not so much. I mean, I completely understand where you're coming from to address you because me and my fiancé, his parents are Chinese. Um, and yeah. even even between us when it comes to the marriage stuff, like we have differences that I did not expect to have. <laughs> and I thought yes. that marrying someone who is also Chinese, I'm like, there's going to be no issues here. But holy crap, <laughs> there are a lot of different things that need to be considered. And especially if we want to respect both sides of our family too and, and their needs for for both of us. So I completely get the difficulty of, of that. Yeah. And, and, and Indian is a uh, culture is very similar that we have, like I mentioned earlier, we have so many varieties of what Indian is. So even, so my fiance is Telugu, I'm Gujarati. And even when we're talking about the priest that's going to marry us, you know, it's like, is it a Gujarati priest or a Telugu priest? Mm. So it's like, and it's not called a priest, but just giving you guys context. Mm-hmm. What are the traditions that we're going to have? What language are we going to teach our kids? Mm. Um, so there's definitely that Indian commonality. But even within both Indian and Chinese culture, there is a huge variety yeah. in, in how to mesh that together. So going even outside of those, it, you know, it adds a lot more complexity and a lot more mm-hmm. layers. But I really do think it depends on how rooted you are and what you want, right? Because um, mm-hmm. not everybody, because let's, let's just say you're raised Indian, you may not be that religious. So you may not care if the person's mm-hmm. religious and then it doesn't matter. So I think it's about how you feel about what you're looking for in life. Um, and there's no one way to do it. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And so you and your fiance, he's Indian. Um, I know within the Indian culture, marriage is a really big and prominent focus, right? Even like you said, getting married at 20, between the ages of 23 to 25 is like a thing in Indian culture. Can you talk about how the role of marriage has played into your value system, maybe growing up and then as it is now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in so um, marriage is a goal in Indian culture. Uh, you aren't really a person until you're married. Um we're not allowed to date, but you're expected to be married by 22. So um, that's just uh, kind of how it is. And, you know, when I was growing up, I was, you know, I had my plan. I was, you know, 15 years old and I was like, I'm going to get married at 23, have my first kid at 25, have my second kid at 27 and call it a day. And well, here I am a decade later. So just 10 years off my plan, uh, getting married. Um, and the funny thing is, is, you know, and I used to tell people being 30, 31, 32 and Indian and single is like being 50 and American and single. Like 
you are old and outdated and people are really concerned. Um, you know, the crazy thing is like, no matter how much I succeed in my career, like I could literally tell people, Hey, I am, you know, a CEO now. And they're like, but are you married yet? So <laughs> that's how ingrained, you know, marriage is into our culture. Yeah. It's, it's a huge focal point. But for those of you out there that are like me, that are in your 30s or close to 30s or mid 30s or, or anything above, you know, typical Indian marriage age, um, I'll tell you that I have no regrets about getting married now. I mm. got to experience all the things in life that I could have wanted to experience as a single person. I traveled. I got my career to the place that I wanted to get it. I had all these experiences with friends. I did so many things in my life. And now I feel really good about moving to the next chapter of my life. And also, I found the right guy. And I think for me, and, and I'll tell you this, as an Indian, it's not hard to get married. Because marriage is such a focal point. You can find someone. You can have an arranged marriage. You can be set up and get married quickly. So marriage, to me, was never the goal. It was finding the right person. And maybe that's the American side of me. But mm, mm. that's what I was waiting for. And so I found the right person. And I am so thrilled and so happy. And he's amazing. I feel so good about waiting because this is what I wanted. Darcy, I'm like so, so happy to hear that. So actually, I was in um, in Gurgaon, India, working oh, wow. uh, to train our, yeah. our team overseas for two months. And even talking to my coworkers who, you know, the ones that were, who are younger than me, they would also tell me that, and I don't want to overgeneralize, so I want to ask you this question too, is arranged marriage still a thing within even, you know, families that have moved over to the, to the US? Is it always the sort of 1960s India thinking and it's always still sort of prevalent amongst um, your parents and even your friends' parents? Yeah, arranged marriage. Um, this is something I definitely wanted to talk about because for two things. One, for the Indian people out there, but two, also for the non-Indians because I think when people think arranged marriage, they think your parents pick someone for you and you just get to the altar and that's who you're marrying. Um, it's not like that. <laughs> and arranged marriages absolutely exist in America, in, and in India, and every place does it differently. So I can't even say there's one way to do it, um, but it's definitely not what it used to be where you meet someone and then you're married. Like, you meet them at the altar. It's not like that. I actually told my parents I was part of the arranged marriage process. I wanted my parents to find me someone. Arranged marriages generally work through a couple different ways. There's something called a bio data, which is essentially like your online dating profile, but with the more family-friendly stuff, you know, um, not that party picture that you have, but, you know, <laughs> the where you went to school, your siblings, like your job, you know, just like your basic 411 and talks about your family and, and things like that, where you grew up. So the reason this is so good is because what a range marriage process really tries to do is match those foundational pieces. I mean, I know as Asians, like I'm sure your parents were like, oh, don't be with someone who didn't go to XYZ university or, or above, right? Because I know I heard that a lot from my Asian friends. Like, don't try to date someone that didn't go to XYZ place. So it kind of takes the foundational elements out of the equation and just gets you to focus on, do I like this person? Do I have personality connection, chemistry connection, physical attraction? And usually the way the process works is you'll exchange bio data, at least in America, um, and it's different in India a little bit, but because in India, it's like I said, it's more community. So it's kind of word of mouth. Um, 
and biodata. So there's they have a, they have their own mechanisms in place. But in America, you have biodata. Your aunt will be like, "Hey, I have this guy." You'll be like, "Great, let me send you the biodata." They'll get the biodata. You'll get their biodata. You'll be like, "Okay, do I want to talk to this person? Yes or no?" And then if you decide both yes, then you'll either get connected through email, through phone, through whatever. And then you'll either go on a date, you'll have a conversation, um, and then you'll kind of see what you want to do. So it's not like I have to talk to the person and say, yes, I want to marry them. Mm -hmm. But it's also not like, hey, I'm introduced to this person. I'm going to wait three years of dating to get married. You do have options. You do have choices. It's more of a setup um, through your families. So in that sense, there's a little bit more pressure to take it seriously, to get to the crux of the issue. So you talk about babies, you talk about values, you talk about all the critical things very quickly, very upfront. And then that process is essentially expedited. And so you're not dating for a while. You get married very quickly. So arranged marriage is more like speed marriage versus arranged marriage, Mm -hmm. I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. So hopefully that clears it up for, for most listeners. It's not this... 19 you know 30s uh, i'll see you at the altar because my parents told me to <laughs> yeah. yeah i actually the way you describe it I, you know i wouldn't be i wouldn't mind signing up the bio data stuff sounds, right? sounds really efficient <laughs> uh, but it is at her at Mel, yeah, at Mel's family dressing. <laughs> no, no. i mean mel don't you think it'd be so easy if your parents were like look you wanted someone that's these four things, this education, has this type of job, you know, has a good family. And you know that because mm-hmm. you've done your research and you've talked to 10 other Indian families yeah. and you've gotten the recommendations, right? So it's like you come from a good family. You have this. You have that. You just now figure out if you if you like him or not. I mean, to me, I'm like, sign me up. No, same, same. I'm just like, that's what I'm trying to do on the dating app, but I don't have that information. I don't have that filter. Damn. No, so one thing I love, so I think Janet, like, she'll share a lot about, you know, your conversations that you guys have on the phone. And she'll always say, like, Shreshi has a system down to, like, finding the one. Or, or like, your, your our dating experience is pretty uh, comprehensive, we could say, right? And I know, like, that you talked about, like, you found the one. Like, I think a lot of, you know... Maybe I'm thinking for myself, like, you know, being a single woman who is looking for the one, like, what was your approach like finding the one? And like, how was your dating life like? You know, was it casual? How did you balance, you know, finding the one and also like dating casually? Yeah. So this could take a whole podcast in itself, (laughs) (laughs) my my approach to dating. So, okay, let me see if I can break it down. So I did it for a long time. I did it for at least seven plus years, I want to say. So I went through a lot of phases. I transformed my dating life just the way dating transformed. So um, taking it all the way back to the times when we didn't have apps, right? We had like a match.com, right? Which you have to sign up and pay for. And and now it's like I can download Tinder and get on a date tonight at 9 p.m. if I wanted to. So (laughs) very different. Dating has shifted so much in the last five to seven to 10 years. In this crazy world of online dating, I can tell you that here's my lessons learned and and how I approached it. So first of all, you're on so many apps. At one point, I was on eight different apps on Indian specific apps, on general apps, on dating sites, on on arranged marriage, biodata, getting sent out. So there was a lot of stuff going on. Um, What I can tell you is when I was on all these apps, the couple of things I learned was Texting doesn't tell me anything about you. A phone call doesn't tell me that much about you. What I really need to know is only something I can judge when I see you in person. And it can take me five minutes to one hour to tell you if I want to date you. So I always took the approach of um, as soon as I connected with someone, I just was like, hey, 
great to connect. How do you feel about meeting up? And I don't care about asking, like if that's asking the guy out or whatever. I was like, I'm here to figure this out for me. So I don't need to put any pretenses up. Um, so, and I think it's a little bit different with Indian dating too, because people are all looking for marriage to some degree, not all, but a chunk of people are. And so, um, I would text them immediately. Then I would pick, I would generally try to only grab a drink. Cause sometimes if you're on a date and you go out for dinner and you're like, this is getting awkward and 10 minutes into the date and you don't want to stay for dessert or appetizers. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I wore the same outfit. I tried to do a one-hour date drinking alcohol or coffee only. That way it's super simple because when you put so much pressure on that first date, it doesn't do good for you or for the other person. Um, so I had that system where it was like my first meeting with you told me everything I needed to know about if I wanted to go on a second date with you. Not that you're the one, but if I even wanted to go on a second date because a lot of times you're texting or you get on the phone with someone and then you meet them in person and you're like, this is two different people. Right. And so for me, it's like the person in person is who I'm going to be interacting with. So that was one big approach. And and that's, I, that's what I recommend to people is try to cut the initial part of it, because the real meat and potatoes is only going to happen when you see that person. And then don't take the first date so seriously. So even after the first date, if you don't need to feel obligated to go on a second date, you met someone for one hour it's okay. <laughs> I, I took notes. Uh, <laughs> Mel's like typing. Was Josh, like, maybe if you could share, because I remember there was one point where you were, um, you. so once you went past the do on to go on a second date, you actually were developing relationships with people to see if you wanted to commit, right? And there was a point where you had like literally, I think it was like eight different guys that you were kind of seeing to trying to figure that out, right? You knew you were looking for the one, but you felt like in order to be able to figure out which one that person was, you had to change your mindset to be kind of like, you had to be more short-term focused, I think, right? Does that make sense? Like versus kind of being like, oh, I'm, I'm focused on marriage because then I need to decide on one of you. But you had to be open to seeing which one would be the the kind of right one. Yeah, so it was a journey for sure. Um, I think when I first started this process, um, and you know, Janet, you've been with me every step of the way. But when I first started this process, it was like very marriage focused. Um, eventually I went, I tested and tried all these things. I went from, I'm going to go on a date with anybody to, I'm going to be very specific about who on, who I go on a date with. So I went through so many different tests. Um, the one thing I didn't really do is date casually. <laughs> Again, hope my parents aren't listening, but actually <laughs> right before I met my, my fiance, I did end up dating casually. And that's what Janet's really referring to is I just had fun. I just went on dates. Um, I had a good time and even though I quickly knew that that person wasn't the one so for example I casually dated a couple guys uh, one of the guys I casually dated um, on our second date we were both like yeah we're never gonna be together literally our second date we were like but we really like hanging out with each other okay let's just do this and that was my first ever experience knowing I don't think I really have a future with you but I'm really enjoying what this is right now and I can honestly tell you, it made a difference in me meeting my fiance because <laughs> um, my fiance and I had a very interesting first couple of dates, um, our first date especially. You know, when I went into this situation with him, because I had casually dated, I was open to whatever this turned out to be. Now, it turned out to be that he was the one, yes. But I think that mindset absolutely helped me continue dating him and not taking whatever happened on that first, second, third, fourth date to be like, oh my God, let me go through my checklist or 
okay, let me make sure this is matching everything I need, but really just opened up my heart and my mind. And, and I'll say this, I think when you meet the right person, the checklist goes out the window. So you can have a checklist all day, but there's just something very intangible. And I knew from the start that he was the right person for me. Um, so, and that was a hard pill for me because Janet, I remember talking to you so many times and I'm like, but, but this is so different. And she was, you know, very supportive. And she was like, yeah, but see it through. And, and because I had casually did it, I did have the open mindset to see it through a little bit more. Did you also meet him through the dating apps? I met him on Hinge. Oh. oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stories. I know, right? I've only heard failed ones so far from Mel and Janet, so this is a- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sorry, Helen, we're giving you failed stories. No, Drush is like giving me hope because I feel like I think I definitely have that tendency to just like place so much weight on like this is the one, this is it. Or if I go casual, I fall really hard. I'm just like, wait, this you're not falling for me, but I'm falling for you. This is like no 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 no. Yeah. And we hear about all of it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what you said is just being more open-minded. I, I could see how that definitely plays into, like, finding your fiancé and being more like, yeah, like, we'll see where it goes. Like, I think it's so easy for us to be like, oh, you did that wrong. Like, no, apps, like, you're like, we're done. Or kind of like that. Like, we're very – I think we're more pickier on the apps, too. And you know what? Um, Like I said, it was a journey. And I talk to Janet about this all the time, you know, as, as both you and her are, are dating and on apps and stuff. And – I think it's a journey because I think we go through phases, right? Sometimes we're like, oh, I don't want to date at all. Sometimes we're like, okay, I'm going to have six dates this weekend and try to date everybody and this is all I'm going to do. And and we change, our preferences change, we evolve. And I can tell you the guy that I was looking for before pre-business school, like pre-consulting, pre-evolution of, of the person I am today is not the guy that I'm with and I'm very thankful. So I would just say... To all the people that always tell you, like, you're being too picky or you're not picky enough or criticizing dating, don't listen to them because you're on your own journey and you will figure it out for yourself. I just, I know how much heat I got. I know Janet and I have talked about how much judgment there is in the dating process. It's like raising kids. Everyone's very critical, but it's it's you, it's your life, it's your process, it's your journey. So just, you know, have faith in yourself and then, you know, feel free to take advice as you want it, but know that you know what's right for you. That's good advice. So Josh, this is the next question I want to ask you. I feel like we could have like an hour-long conversation about it, <laughs> being two engaged women. Um, but I want to hear about what is currently in store for your wedding planning. What was the original date? What did you have planned? What is it like to have an Indian wedding? Um, and also, has anything been affected because of all the COVID stuff? Yes. Um, yet another question that could take up its own podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, let me actually just give everyone a context to Indian weddings because I think they're really different than non-Indian weddings. Um, first of all, Indian weddings are huge. The smallest Indian wedding I've ever been to is like 350 people. Um, wow. I've been to an uh, Indian wedding with up to a thousand people before. So you really have a huge range of guest count. And in India especially, they just invite the entire community. And here in America, it's there's a lot of people. It's like my aunts, cousins. Like you have to invite everybody in your family. There's a long list of people um, in general. And so it's it's a very big, big thing. Now, it's very expensive. So a lot of Indian people in America are cutting down on their guest list because an average Indian wedding for even like three, 400 people like in LA costs 200 grand. Oh it's my goodness. insane. Holy. And the reason is one, it's not just the guest count, but it's the amount of uh, events you have. So mm. I know a lot of people have heard about Indian people, Indian weddings having multiple days. Now it's not a week long necessarily. Um, 
but there is anywhere from three to five events uh, that people have. Some people have more, some people have less. Like I said, it's very customized um, into people's budgets and how they want to do it. But Indian ceremonies are not 15 minutes. They are an hour and a half to three hours. Um, and in India, even longer. Um, there's a lot of different ceremonies, a lot of traditions, and a lot of things we do. We have multiple pre-wedding events. We have a reception after. And we have sometimes post-wedding events. And a lot of this is traditional. Depending on what you want to do, you can pick and choose. But yeah, I would say that's generally how Indian weddings are. Um, they're big, they're crazy, they're long, they're super fun. Um, you wear multiple outfits and, you know, you spend two hours getting ready for one event, you go to the event, and then you come back, change, and spend two hours getting ready for the next event. It, it's it's quite fun, actually, um, and you get to bond with a lot of people there. I guess about my wedding specifically now, um, we were supposed to get married um, on uh, September 12th, so uh, Janet's one of my bridesmaids, and so she knows the whole process, and we went through a Indian Wedding 101 session <laughs> um, with me and my bridesmaids a couple months ago. She did a conference call with everyone in true consultant style. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I did not have a PowerPoint, so I thought <laughs> yeah. I would, but I decided let me let me be more casual about it. <laughs> yeah, we had a um, so we had five events planned. So Henna Night was Thursday, a religious prayer called Grashanti on Friday morning, a Sangeet, um, which is one of the pre-wedding events. It's a night of dancing and Ooh. fun um, on Friday night. Wedding Saturday morning, and then reception uh, Saturday night. So those were our events. Um, we didn't have 400 people for all of it, just the, the wedding and the reception and the Sangeet, but the religious ceremony and the henna night was just very, very small. And that was a decision that we made as a family. Um, also, the other thing about Indian weddings, it's it's not about you. It's really not. It's about your family. So we have weekly wedding phone calls with my fiance's parents and my parents to discuss and align on how we want to do this. And so with COVID, um, we've actually been having calls still every week and trying to figure out, do we want to cancel? Do we not want to cancel? How do we want to alter this? One of the other big parts of our wedding um, is that we were actually supposed to be in India for shopping. But what ended up happening is one of the big parts about Indian weddings too is like auspicious dates and times to get married. It's a big cultural thing. And our auspicious date and time happened to be on during our India trip. So we were actually going to get married in India, have a religious ceremony there. And because of COVID, that whole thing ended up getting canceled. Our India trip got canceled. And so um, the the challenge here is, although that all got canceled, his parents are in India. So we're still waiting on his parents to make sure they can come back before we can get married. So it's mm. a fairly complicated COVID situation that we have. Oh my goodness. There are so many moving pieces. I'm getting like shivers thinking about it because I know how much effort it takes just to even like lock down a place and a date. And, and you're saying like all of these families and the different specifications and all of that that needs to be involved is just so hard to plan around. So ugh, that's so frustrating. I'm sorry. I'm sorry yeah. that that's no, it's, happening. Yeah. You know, um, I told my fiance this. I was like, look, no matter what, it's going to be a good story and it's going to be memorable. So whatever our wedding turns out to be, it will be a memorable occasion because we'll be like, yeah, we tried to get married and then COVID happened. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you for joining us today, Drushti, uh, for sharing your personal perspective and experiences on everything from dating to your career to your culture so that more of our ABGs and ABBs can feel heard and reflected. And those who are of a different Asian or non-Asian background can learn something new. Um, If our listeners want to find you online, uh, where can they find you? I am on Facebook and Instagram, although I'm not super active, but if you message me, I will be absolutely available to reply and engage and would love to chat with you and see if you guys have any questions. And you're also on LinkedIn, right? I am on LinkedIn as well. Yes, yes. Awesome. And you guys can also send messages for Drushti to AsianBossGirl at gmail.com and we'll be sure to forward to her. Um, We also have some partnerships that we're very happy to share with you. We have BetterHelp and Daily Harvest. Um, Links and codes can be found in our show notes. For more partnership discounts, head to our website at AsianBossGirl.com. You can find us on all the podcasting platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review at AsianBossGirl. If you'd like to support us through monthly donations, you can do so at anchor.fm slash asianbossgirl slash support. We are also very active on social. Our handle is at asianbossgirl. If you resonate with today's guests and episodes, screen cap the podcast, tag us, and we can reshare on our Instagram stories. Also find us on YouTube, where we have slowly started posting some vlogs. Subscribe at Asian Boss Girl. And thank you to our super talented editor, Michelle, for working all of her magic on our episodes, including this one. Catch you all in the next episode. Bye. Bye.